0: There is no greater love than the one that a parent holds for their children and so as a parent can you imagine ever having to say these types of words. Please don't take away my child's medicine, he's likely to die without it. It's unthinkable that most of us would ever have to say such words, but imagine that you were forced to utter exactly these types of challenging words to the people who helped to govern the United Kingdom. I'm referring to the British Home Office. Imagine a scenario where you had to beg such people not to take away a medicine that was saving your son's life. Surely these aren't the sort of situations that happen in the UK, do they? This is the question I can hear you asking yourself in doubt and disbelief. Sadly, those are exactly the words that a young single mum had to say when she was forced to beg the UK authorities not to take her 13-year-old boy's medicine away. But in 2018 because of some of the legislation that existed in the UK back then. Her Charles Medicine, which was a special type of medically prescribed cannabis oil, was confiscated at Heathrow Airport, and ultimately by the British Home Office. Billy, who is now almost 16 years of age, and who we'll learn much more about as the podcast unfolds, quickly took ill. He was rushed into Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, with his life in jeopardy. And with his mum beside herself in fear and disbelief. Surely this couldn't happen in the UK and in the year 2018. But thanks to the support from a caring team of PR advisers and a national news journalist, with Billy's condition becoming even more delicate, and with the world's media looking on sympathetically at Billy's plight but critically towards the authorities, amongst a remarkable amount of red tape, the British Home Office eventually surrendered their stubborn stance and made the decision to release Billy's medicine. And so in that moment, his life was saved. After this incident and such a threat to Billy's precious life, it's hard to comprehend how and why Billy and his mum would ever need to endure further difficulties accessing the medicine needed to save and sustain his life. But that's exactly what went on to happen. This podcast winds back from that incident at Heathrow Airport in the year 2018, to share a truly remarkable story of determination, of bravery, of hope, of overcoming adversity that spans over 16 years. As the story unfolds, we'll share insights into the incredible life story of a brave Irish girl. We share some of the best and the worst parts of modern society. We learn about the detail of hope. We learn about the fragility of some government systems and policies. We learn about fear. And heartwarmingly, we learn about the kindness offered by a caring number of people from around the world who only had the health and well-being of a little boy at heart. My name is David Lilly, and I have the great privilege of walking you through this incredible true story. I want to start this heart-wrenching insight into Charlotte and Billy's life by going back to Charlotte's childhood years. This is where we'll discover how she began to learn how to confront and overcome adversity in her life. Charlotte was born in the year 1967 into a large Northern Irish family of eight children. She describes her early years in the Northern Irish town of Castlederg as challenging for a poor family in a modest home and with little money. But she does recall her mummy extending a lot of
1: love because albeit that mummy might have left us a lot on her own and she was a lady of the night, there was a lot of love there from her, if that makes sense. She just wasn't capable, David, of raising eight small children on her own. She just wasn't capable.
0: And then one morning in the year 1976, when Charlotte was just nine years of age, she was confronted by one of the most devastating experiences that any child could possibly live through. It's a traumatic experience she's carried with her throughout her life, And in my first talk with Charlotte, which had to take place over a video call because of COVID-19 travel restrictions, she reflects on her childhood years and the memories of that awful day. This is the story of Charlotte and Billy Caldwell, appropriately titled Lessons in Hope.
1: I was born into um, a large Irish family, I should say to a lady called Betty and who was my mother and a guy called Jackie who, who was my father. There was eight, yet on our family, four boys and four girls and our father left when I was around the age of four and our house was how do I put this, our house was a happy house full of love and kindness albeit we didn't have very much my mother struggled to put food on the table. She struggled to keep us warm and have anything to put on the fire. We were left a lot on our own. My mother sadly had some issues where she, I suppose the only way to describe her, if I was being totally honest, was she was somewhat a lady of the night. So my elder brothers and sisters were responsible for looking after us younger ones and my memories then was all, as I said, you know, that we were all happy. I remember stale loaves of bread where my brother would be trying to heat some milk. I remember him setting the saucepan on the top of the fire in the grate to heat the milk because... There was no gas for the gas cooker to heat the milk and that was poured over the steel bread and that would have been a meal for us. To get the actual fire lit, using up what sugar was actually left in the, the bottom of the, the sugar canister to light the fire and putting news, old newspapers over the front of the fire to actually get it to at night. It, but then for, for me as a little girl, that was normal. So there was no sadness back then about that situation hmm. because it was normal. That's how it was. But sadly, my mother she was very unhappy and I'm really not sure even now why she wasn't happy but she was very unhappy and she sought out the male gentleman to actually it's almost as though she maybe was trying to find happiness and I'm sure it was difficult for her it had to have been difficult for her because we were all like stepping stones there was about a year a year and a half difference in every one of us down you know the eight kids so I'm sure it, it was difficult for her she um, one particular evening she we were left alone and we were in bed and I woke up to a lot of shouting downstairs in our house and I remember climbing out of bed and going out onto the landing and sitting at the top of the top stair where the banister, you know, when looking down through the banister. And I could see in our hallway, my mother was there with a man with her and my grandmother was there with a blackthorn stick. My grandmother was beating this man with a blackthorn stick and she put him out of the house. And I remember then mummy was crying and the, the lights went off downstairs. So she was starting to come up the stairs. So I run quickly and got back into bed and pretended I was sleeping. And she could come into the room and got into bed beside me. And um she said which was very unusual she said the lord's prayer and um you know our father who art in heaven hallowed by thy thy name and she she shook me and because i was pretending i was sleeping and she said will you go downstairs and get me a sandwich and a glass of milk so i did that i went downstairs and got a glass of milk and there was nothing to put on a sandwich in fact the bread was hard that but i left it two slices of bread and there was a ton of syrup so I put syrup on the bread and um, and brought it up to her and got back into bed and I fell asleep but the next thing was I woke up in the morning and my brother my elder brother and my elder sister were in the room and we had a baby in the house, my little brother. He was only six months old at the time and he was crying. Um. So my and he was in the cot in our room. Um. I had always slept beside mummy in her room. So the cot was there as well with the baby in it. So my sister picked him up, picked the baby up and took him downstairs to feed him. And I realised mummy wasn't moving in the bed. And when I looked at her face, she was very black or all, all around her face, almost like bruised. And her hands were like almost as if they were all like blue and and bruised and my brother felt her pulse and then at the side of her mouth I noticed a piece of bread sitting on at the side of her mouth but her eyes were closed but she wasn't moving and he said to me he said um she's dead so he lifted me out of the bed and I I remember screaming that somebody must have hurt her because she was so blue I thought somebody had came in and crept in in the middle of the night and beat her I know that sounds about Crazy, but that's what I was thinking in my head at nine years of age. But and so what had happened was it came to light a number of years later that when I had went downstairs to get my glass of milk and a sandwich. She had taken rat poisoning because her house was so old and there was um, holes and there used to be saucers of rat poisoning or something at the holes in the sk- with a skirting board, you know, the hole in the skirting board. And she'd taken her own life. She, um, she was gone. And that was huge impact on, on my life as a little girl.
0: And that devastating, unthinkable experience was not the only challenge that Charlotte would go on to be confronted by during her childhood years. The nine-year-old girl would face many more difficult life circumstances. Charlotte now takes us back to those childhood years, picking up the story by explaining the next chapter of her life more than 40 years ago, and explaining who were the guardians to take care of a fragile little girl after the sad death of her mummy.
1: My grandmother and grandfather took over then, bringing us up. Throughout the time and the years that my grandfather and my grandmother brought us up, some of those times were very, very challenging. And... In those times, I learned very quickly survival skills that then I was able to apply throughout the battle to keep Billy alive. Um, Albeit my upbringing as well was my granny and granda wasn't the happiest. My grandmother was a very stern, uh, strict, cruel woman. My grandfather was the opposite. He was happy, loving and kind. But my grandmother dominated the household, as in most Irish families in those days, that's how it was. But that aside, I would say as well that upbringing, those years I spent with my grandparents, I suppose really I can thank them because I I truly believe to this day, if it wasn't for that type of upbringing, Billy wouldn't be here today. I I wouldn't have had the strength to fight the way I did to keep him alive. It, It was almost like David, I suppose. The way I can describe it was like a soldier from a very early age was taught, had to be hyper vigilant to protect myself. And I think that's what I learned from, which is quite sad, really. That's what I learned from the upbringing from my grandmother. I was hyper-vigilant at all times because of the cruelty. She used to say things to me like, you, you're you just like your mother, you know, you have her attitude. The rest of my brothers and sisters would have been given something um, like a treat, whereas I would have been excluded. I wouldn't have been allowed that. I was uh, made, you know what, from the age of nine, I was taught how to iron shirts, iron school uniforms. We had, we had to wash floors, we had to wash clothes, we had to to wash dishes we learned how to cook how to bake those things those skills i'm not complaining about having had to learn them but we learned them at that age how many years Um, were you
0: actually with them charlotte from your mum dying when you were nine how many years did you spend with your grandparents before you eventually left home
1: to the age of like 16, 17. But, you know, that was one side of the upbringing with my grandmother. But the other side of it was the physical cruelty and the mental abuse. It was rife in the house when, when I look back now. But obviously at nine years of age, you you don't realise that is what's happening to you. I remember my grandmother taking a rubber pipe into me and um welting me along the backs of my legs where I would have red marks on my legs and to go to school I would have to have worn like woolly tights and refuse to do PE because I was so ashamed of these welts on my legs and I knew if they seen them the teacher seen them there would be trouble so then I would get into trouble because granny would think I was showing them to mm-hmm. the teacher you know to the, the PE instructor to get her into trouble so so you had them you know what I mean I remember her 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 daughter, her other daughters, uh, there was one in particular who, um, when she came to visit, I always dreaded it because if you walked past her, she would have pushed you or she would have pulled you by the hair. This was a grown woman we're talking about. Or she would have just slapped you for no reason. So that was like normal behavior. So so I learned not to walk past her, if that makes sense, David, and yep. le- learned to sort of give her the wide burst when she was on the house, you know, I wouldn't go that route. I would choose a different route so as I avoided getting the hair pulled or getting a push or getting a slap from more like, yeah. The death of my mother and then my, my granny and granda- bringing us up on us in that environment and at primary school the teachers then because I had no mother they then would pick on me at school and that also ended up on me being bullied in the, in the school environment by other kids because I was then classed as like um, a social outcast because you have no mother you know you're not worth it. So anything then that was that naughty that was happened at school that another child done was me that would have got the cane. And I would have been blamed for it because I was easy pickings because yeah. I was vulnerable. That was very unhappy times um, for me. But then at that time as well on the school curriculum it was called the 11 plus. You had to do the 11 plus. This is when you were 11 years old to determine yeah. if you went to secondary school or you went to a grammar school. And we got the boys' school And um, lo and behold, I actually passed that exam to go to a grammar school, which was quite um, extraordinary, actually, in our community. And it was quite, quite an achievement, really. I get a wee bit emotional about this part, David, because that was the first time when I passed that exam that my grandmother was actually nice to me for a day. I remember it distinctly. I remember the morning that I got the results. They came in the post and she came upstairs into the bedroom and um, she had this box in her hand. and, But she had this strange look on her face, David. And I mean, when you've had years of dirty looks, um, stern looks, she never smiled at me, never, and never praised me for anything, never. So, and it's really, really quite sad because that morning she came into the room. And as I say, I don't mean to get upset, David. No, that's but fine. It's one of them things that really stuck out. And it's really, lovely. I, I, you know, I, I have often think about, oh, I've thought of it over the years, when she came into the bedroom, with this strange look on her face, it was almost like, And she was smiling at me and I couldn't figure it out, David. I couldn't figure out whether I was in for a good welting or she was going to hug me, if that makes sense. And I remember sitting up rigid in the bed and I remember pulling the covers up to underneath my chin and I'm thinking, oh, God, what is going on? You know, just really, really and truly shocked and apprehensive, not knowing what she was going to do or what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, she pulled this letter out of her apron pocket and she said, you've passed your 11 plus and you're going to OMA Academy, you're going to the grammar school. And she said, and here is a present for you. And she gave me a watch in this box was a watch. It was my first watch, you know, a black strap on it, black leather strap, beautiful watch. And I, I remember I was shaken because I felt as well her kindness um, and her present to me. I knew it would have been short lived if that makes sense. I knew that just because I'd passed my 11 plus, she wasn't going to be nice to me. I was right because it lasted for maybe a day. Um, what
0: was the relationship like between her and your granddad? Was was she the dominant one? So you were saying earlier yeah. that he was kind. And so I imagine you enjoyed that kindness. But was it a situation where that when she was around, he kind of withdrew that kindness?
1: Yeah, our routine was in the week, Monday to Friday, we went to school. On Saturday morning, you got up and you'd done all your, we had all these chores to do. Yeah. and you you weren't allowed outside because we loved getting outside to play and we'd play for hours in the fields you know David and the forest you know we had a, a camp made up where we boiled eggs on a campfire in the field and all of this but we weren't allowed out until you had all this work done and then on a Saturday afternoon it was a real treat the family was taken to the town yeah. Into the into the village, um, to do like shopping and groceries, and and it, it was it was just a real treat to get into the town. Do you understand that? Yeah. But I wasn't allowed to go. But the rest of them could go. But I wasn't allowed to go.
0: What do you put her treatment of you? Because clearly, from what you're saying, Charlotte, she treated you differently to everyone else, and she treated you badly compared to the others. And what do you put that down to?
1: I still haven't got to the bottom of it, um, David. I think it's because she knew that I wasn't the daughter of Betty and Jackie. She knew where I came from. I always felt different from the rest of them. Always. I looked different from the rest of them. I acted differently. I have always felt that difference. And and I was made feel it as well from a very early age. But, you know, my grandmother as well, David, was very, very good at the outside world, the church community the teachers at school, to the general people, you know, people, friends, neighbours that we knew in our community, of painting this picture that everything was good,
0: so you became an adult at what point did you kind of leave home leave your grandparents care and become independent
1: yeah so um I I went to the boys school as I call it and that again I I should talk about that as well because that again was quite a challenge for me and it was a challenge and it was a challenge simply because that school it was the children that went there were children from doctors teachers rich farmers who had a different upbringing from me for example like they I remember this distinctly they would have got a pound a week for their pocket money i got 20 pence and i wouldn't have had like my uniform their school uniform would have been spanking brand new mines just wouldn't have been new um yeah. or my shoes wouldn't have been new or or, or 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 my socks you know and i always felt different there as well because i wasn't i wasn't in the same same league as them i was lower class that was a difficult as well
0: And so came to an end what most observers would describe as a very difficult and traumatic childhood for Charlotte Corwell. The next chapter of Charlotte's life included what might best be described as more than 10 years of career progress, with stints as a successful marketing director in the holiday industry and the opportunity to work and live in warmer parts of the world. The ultimate end to her troubled relationship with grandma was a sad one
1: it was 1998 1999 where she got her diagnosis for cancer and then i think it was around 2007 that she actually died
0: charlotte shares more detail on that experience in this next chapter including how she was to make a final hospital visit and reflections on the positive and negative influence that grandma had on her life But before that, she resumes the process of telling us the story of the baby boy that she had before Billy, and by reflecting on the end to her schooling.
1: I did really well at school. Then I I actually have another son as well, Billy's brother, which is Kyle, lovely young man. So I married Kyle's father, and I was 18, and we had Kyle. And that unfortunately, that marriage didn't work out simply because we were both young, and it was um we were we were just both young. That was just the way you know the way it was. So Kyle's daddy and me split up, and yep. we shared the upbringing of Kyle. And Kyle's um, daddy was amazing, still is, an amazing man. He's now married again and has, you know, three other children. But we remain good friends and I'm good friends with his new wife as well. You know, everything is very good. I got the opportunity to work on the Isle of Man um, and then later years abroad. So Kyle uh, stayed in Northern Ireland to go to school. And then at Easter and Halloween and Christmas, he came to me on the Isle of Man to begin with, where I I went to work. And then when I went further abroad to Spain, he then came, you know, and stayed there, but still did his schooling and stayed in Northern Ireland to do his schooling. And Kai turned out actually to be a really well balanced young man and is now married with a baby and has a a great little business. He's a plumber and is doing really well, you know, married a lovely girl. She's a policewoman, you know really nice family David they're, they're lovely um, and I absolutely love and adore them both. So I worked abroad for about 15 years, travelled all around the world I actually worked in the timeshare industry. I didn't sell timeshare, I actually done the marketing for it and I became really really good at it. I ended up being the uh, marketing director of a timeshare resort with about 300 staff underneath me I earned a lot of money and yeah, a relatively happy life and then my grandmother, my my sister called me to say that she'd been diagnosed with cancer and she wasn't very good and so I flew home to see her I remember that she was in hospital and I remember that was sort of the first time I'd seen her in mm, must have been about maybe 20 years or something It was 1998, 1999, where she got her diagnosis for cancer. And then I think it was around 2007 that she actually died.
0: So how was she when you went to visit her in the hospital as as an adult after the way she was with you as a child? How was she in her dying days with you? How was she towards you?
1: Silent silent
0: there was no she she didn't demonstrate any remorse or anything of that nature
1: there was just a silence she really I don't know if she sort of wanted me there I wasn't made welcome if that makes sense and then her other daughters were there the daughters who would have abused me you know, understand me so they were there they always looked at me as if I was like below them and I've always I don't know what it is David but I've always taken great pride in in how I look and sort of I try and keep myself tidy, if that makes sense. And how how do you put this? You know the way it's my... It's uh, it's
0: one of your pleasures.
1: uh, Yes. And it's a treat for me, if that makes sense. So... But I remember walking into the hospital and them like you know I could feel the atmosphere in the room them looking down at me you know and I would have been very well dressed and they didn't like that they didn't like to see me well dressed you understand me they didn't like to see me where my hair was done and you know I would have been carrying a nice handbag if that makes sense David instead of them saying you know something like God you're you're looking well they would have started to criticise me you know understand me so the atmosphere and you I could see the daggers. I could feel the daggers in their eyes.
0: So what would you put that down to? The resentment they felt because you were doing well in your career and you were being successful and you had the trappings of success in the way you appeared and they demonstrated resentment towards you.
1: Yeah. What was
0: it that made you, given she gave you such a torrid childhood, what was it that made you actually want to visit her? Was that about respect?
1: Yeah, because I think regardless of what she had done, or upbringing was that you respect your elders. As you respect doctors, politicians, you know, priests, reverence, that that was drummed into us. So even though she was very unkind to me and cruel to me, I still had a certain degree of respect for her. But also, I think as well, maybe, just maybe, I was hoping, part of me was hoping that she might say sorry, but she never did. There was no acknowledgement.
0: And how did you feel when she eventually passed away?
1: I went to the funeral, but I didn't feel any emotion. I didn't I didn't hate her, I didn't I didn't love her, I wasn't sad, I wasn't angry, I was just quiet. And it was like a formality, and this probably I have to be honest with you, David, about everything. So if I was being totally honest, it was a formality. I went to the funeral to be seen at the funeral, and so as none of the rest of them, like the rest of my family or her daughters or her sons could point the finger. And call me out and say oh you know she wasn't even capable of attending her grandmother's funeral
0: and so when you look back now as you said earlier despite the torrid upbringing and the cruelty she demonstrated towards you you've got it within your heart to actually isolate the positives and the positives are that she put you on your guard she made you a strong person and mm-hmm. you've brought that forward into your life now and those qualities.
1: She, she actually, I have to thank her, really, because she actually taught me the skills to actually survive one of the biggest battles of my entire life, which was to keep my little boy alive.
0: The illness to Charlotte's grandma and the trips back home to Ireland to visit her encouraged Charlotte to consider her career and life. Her next life choice was a prelude to a chapter of her life that would see Billy Caldwell being born, and consistent with the difficulties presented to her in her younger years, Charlotte had no clue about the challenges that waited for her around the corner
1: i just started to realize at that stage i was about 32 33 i then started to think i just want to come home i'm I'm going to come home and live back home in northern ireland so i came home and got a job met billy's daddy and we decided to have a baby and so billy was conceived billy was actually a twin and i lost the other twin sadly so
0: did you lose one of the twins at birth or sometimes it can happen during the pregnancy can't it
1: no it was um During the pregnancy And under circumstances as well That were not very good Me and Billy's father Loved together And on New Year's Eve We had been out With a load of our friends And we uh, came home And there some of our friends Had came back to our house And we had a bit of a New Year's Eve party But I hadn't been feeling very well So I wasn't drinking And I was pregnant anyway So I wasn't going to drink Billy's father Andrew was, was his name His brother was there With his girlfriend And she called Um, an argument between Andy and his brother and they started to argue in the house and they started to have have a row and I asked them to leave then the house and when I asked them to leave Andy's brother pushed me and I went down underneath the the kitchen table and the next day I was rushed to hospital I was bleeding and I had lost the other twin
0: What stage in the pregnancy did that occur Charlotte?
1: I was about 10-12 weeks pregnant so then it was a difficult pregnancy with Billy from that moment onwards. I was back and forward and out of hospital till eventually at 20, what do we see? So 20, Billy was born at 34 weeks. So 12 weeks before Billy was born, which would have been, I was 18 weeks pregnant. I was rushed to the hospital and I had to stay in the hospital then for 12 weeks because I was risked losing Billy as well. So Billy was born, I spent 12 weeks and then eventually... Uh, in the hospital and um, then they decided I had I kept bleeding I had they ended up I had a low lion placenta which was causing me to, to bleed quite a bit so they kept me in the hospital then for for 12 weeks and at 34 weeks after a really bad bleed they decided to do an emergency cesarean section. So Billy was born by a cesarean section of 34 weeks. He was fine apart from he needed a little bit of help with his breathing so he was taken to the neonatal unit and he got some oxygen there and stayed there for I think it was about 10 days but when they had done the cesarean section on me they put me into a sidewalk Board after the section to recover and one of the nurses realized I was hemorrhaging so they had to rush me back to theatre and take out my womb and do an emergency hysterectomy and I had to get nine units of blood. I nearly died actually, they nearly lost me and I was in intensive care then and it was touch and go whether I was going to survive. I was in intensive care then for 48 hours. They brought the, the reverend and all to, to actually um, give me my last rites. And my whole wow. my family was called. So that was uh, that was a challenge as well. But then I, I you know, I got Billy home after about uh we went home we went home about two to three weeks later after that.
0: So at this stage, Charlotte, there there was no indication that Billy had got a yeah. health condition.
1: No, nothing. He was discharged as a normal, healthy wee boy, albeit he was six weeks early, but he was discharged healthy, yeah.
0: Uh, At what point did you realise that Billy had got a health condition?
1: So Billy was uh, four months old and I was in bed, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I was reading the newspaper and Billy was in his Moses basket. At the side of the bed beside me, Billy's father was away. He was uh, a long-distance lorry driver, so he was away. And um, I just caught Billy out of the side of my eye, and I looked, and he was lying, uh, looking up, staring at the ceiling with his eyes open, but his body wasn't moving. So I lifted him, immediately dropped the paper, lifted him out, and rubbed his back, because I thought he had wound. I thought he a wee bit of wound, and he did, he burped. So I put him back into the Moses basket and he went back to sleep. So I carried on reading the paper. About 10 minutes later, he'd done the same thing again. Mm. And I picked him up, put him on my knee. He burped again. And then I put him back in. He went to sleep again. And then about 15 minutes later, he'd done the same thing again. So I picked him up. I went downstairs and I rang the out-of-hours doctor. So And I explained to them what he was doing. So they said, bring him into A&E and we'll have a SATs checked. So... I put Billy in the car, drove him on A and E. And while we were in A, he did the same thing again. That's just blank staring. And because when they checked his sats and everything, he was fine. There was nothing wrong. So but the nurse was in the cubicle in A and E and I said, Look, he's doing it again. And she said, Okay. OK, she said, I see what you're talking about now, Um, because they checked the SATs, his temperature, everything was normal. So she brought the doctor and the doctor said, we're just going to send them to our main hospital, which was in a skill and then keep them in overnight and have them observed. So I said, great, fine. So I said, I have my car. Shall I drive them? And they said, no, we'll send them by ambulance. So. They, they brought an ambulance round. Billy and I got into the ambulance and doors closed and was on about five minutes in the ambulance. The next thing was Billy went into a full-blown grand mal tunnel seizure in the back of the ambulance. He went bright red like a tomato. The paramedics were cutting off his baby grow and cutting off his vest. They had lying into his arm. They were bagging him. They were having oxygen on him. They were on the phone today and he had his killing this little boy. In a grand mal tonic seizure, um, they were just it was completely and utterly crazy stuff, David. I was like, Oh my! I, and all I could do was sit back with the seatbelt on me and the seat in the ambulance. And Billy looked so tiny, David. He was like, He was only four months old, so he was on. This big bed and, you know, and there was three of them and they were amazing. So it was actually a 50 minute drive from our house to Enniskellen Hospital and Billy was blue lighted the whole way. They were, you know, the the guy who was driving was flying. And as soon as we arrived, the nurse, the, the doctors and the nurses were outside waiting for Billy. They grabbed him and they ran. And I remember when they were running with him, Billy had diarrhea david and it it was running everywhere all over the nurse's uniform and i remember i I shouted to the nurse. i said there's diarrhea on your uniform because i don't know why i shouted that and they took him into the AE unit and put him on the bed and there was like maybe eight people doctors nurses around him and one nurse came and took me out and made me sit in the waiting room now that david it was like i sat in the the biggest longest waiting room um of my entire life because I sat in that waiting room for six and a half hours and the nurse would come to me like every maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes and say, they're still working on them, Charlotte, but they can't get the seizure stopped. We don't know if we can get it stopped. So the consequences for Billy was death. And I knew that, David, Mm. if they didn't get that seizure stopped. And they were pumping him full of all sorts of drugs to try and stop it. And eventually, seven and a half later, she came, hours, the nurse came out and said, We've got it stopped. And I was allowed to go on and see him. And there he was, it, this little tiny frail body. Like, surrounded by all these machines. The machines were bigger than him, David, you know what I mean? And all these chips going on to him and lines. And uh, it was just, I just, I, I was shocked. But you know what? They had to flatten them basically. They had to have a knock them out, if that makes yeah. sense to stop yeah. it. And um, so he was very ill. He he was a very, very ill little boy. And um, then we were transferred them to the City Hospital in Belfast, the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. And um, the seizures continued, just one after the other. They just wouldn't stop. They tried every anti-epileptic pharmaceutical you can think of. Billy was on cocktails of them. They weren't working. His seizures were getting worse. We spent... 16 weeks there and there was nothing working
0: how many seizures would he be having typically a day back then was it literally almost constant charlotte yeah
1: yeah they just told me to stop counting yeah because i was counting them and writing them all down you know the times the you know the length the duration of the seizure what he was doing in the seizure you know describing it they just told me to stop counting and then The consultant that was looking after Billy was a Dr Hanrahan, and um, Billy was admitted on the, this was the beginning of December 2005, to the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. By February 2006, Dr Hanrahan was saying to me, he will not live past his first birthday. He's not going to survive. He will have no quality of life. We are asking you to Consider taking him into a side ward, and uh, we will put a line into his arm. There will be morphine in a, a drop, and a line going into him. And um, we will allow—they said to me—we will allow you to hold him on your knee, but he will just go to sleep forever on your knee. I've
0: got to ask you, Charlotte. Was that what we could describe as a normal action to take? And clearly. No, just- Clearly, Billy was very, very, very poorly. And clearly, they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to stop the seizures. But to suggest that action, I mean, is that even legal in in this country?
1: No, because what transpired was, David, I kept saying to him, you know, I refused to do it. But every morning on the ward round, this was the conversation they were having with me, and I kept refusing. Do you understand me? Yeah. So what transpired was, later on, A year and a half later, when I took Billy to Chicago, UTV Insight did a documentary on Billy and followed us to Chicago. And Professor Helen Cross at Great Ormond Street was interviewed. For that documentary, and the journalist asked her, "Was it something that would be done? Uh, was a child with severe epilepsy was to inject him with morphine to end his life?" And she said, "No, and I—that's actually up on YouTube." That so bear in mind at that time as well, um David. I was pleading with Dr. Hanrahan when he'd yeah. come on these ward rounds in the morning, and I was going to him. Surely there must be somewhere I can take my little boy. What about? I asked him for a second opinion to Professor Helen Cross at Great Ormond Street who's a world-ranking paediatric neurologist in Billy's condition. I said, America, I said, Germany, there has to be somewhere I would like a second opinion. He informed me that he had sent Billy's medical records already to Professor Helen Cross at Great Ormond Street and Professor Helen Cross... Was the same of the same opinion as him? Billy was going to die, and to give him to give Billy the morphine. Now, fast forward a year and a half, like I said, to the UTV Insight documentary when Helen Cross was interviewed by UTV Insight team. There was two things she said very clearly in the interview. One was morphine would not be used in children with epilepsy. Was the first thing. The second thing was she had never heard tell of Billy until September 2009 when the Minister of Health in Northern Ireland contacted her which was 18 months later, to see Billy, okay? So the doctor lied. The doctor lied.
0: And to support Charlotte's stance on that opinion, and that opinion was that Billy was not referred as Dr. Hanrahan had claimed, here is a short clip from that documentary and the voice of Dr. Helen Cross from Great Ormond
1: Street. If I was made a referral, then we would not turn down a referral. We carefully consider all cases and are unlikely to refuse any if a paediatric neurologist has requested that we give an opinion.
0: At this stage, it was clear that Charlotte wasn't sure what to do next in order to help Billy. What she did know is that she didn't trust Dr Hanrahan. Charlotte's unfaltering determination to protect her boy's life needed to take on a new direction. She had issues to sort with Billy's father, but the fire and passion to protect Billy and give him a chance for life had now firmly taken
1: hold. But I didn't give in, David. I then said, I want to take him home. And if Billy is going to die, I want him to die at home. That's what I want. So Billy was discharged from hospital in February 2006. He was eight months old then and he was discharged home to die on a palliative care plan.
0: Was he being prescribed any medication whatsoever to try and stop these seizures at, at that time?
1: He was on a cocktail of medications. He was on five anti-epileptic pharmaceuticals that weren't working, and then he was on other pharmaceuticals to counteract the detrimental side effects of those five pharmaceuticals.
0: When you say the medications weren't working, Charlotte, can you define that? In other words... Was he still having, you know, literally dozens dozens of seizures despite Hundred, this medication? Hundreds.
1: Hundreds per day and night, yeah.
0: So the medication at that time sounds like it was playing very little part in helping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Billy's father, which is a point I need to make, is that 16 weeks we were in the Royal Victoria Hospital when Dr. Hanrahan was putting me under immense pressure to give and and give Billy the morphine, morphine to end his life. Billy's father was siding with the doctors and he was agreeing with them. So he was then putting pressure on me to do this and I wouldn't do it. So that was the basically the end of our relationship, me and Billy's father. Any love that I had for him just went. Because you had a precious
0: um, life that you wanted to protect. Yeah. He didn't see it that way because he... No he didn't feel that the issues that Billy was suffering from were surmountable?
1: Well, it didn't fit into his or or his family's, I suppose, outlook of how a child should be. You know, in society, that Billy having special needs and epilepsy is stigmatised. And in their, their world, it's not acceptable. So you just end their life, get rid of them, because that would be such a shame on them, on him, that he fathered a child that had special needs and on them that they were actually related to a child with special needs and epilepsy.
0: Charlotte was now at the heart of the worst type of personal storm. Billy was an incredibly poorly little boy, clinging to life by a thread and with a mummy desperate to protect and save him. Charlotte needed to spend four months in the hospital alongside Billy and during this time she began to do the deep research into Billy's condition of epilepsy, scouring the internet to find a glimmer of hope and a doctor or a medical professional who might be able to treat Billy and give Charlotte the miracle she was looking for.
1: That 16 weeks, David, that I spent on that ward was Billy and I never left his side. I only left his side once in the 16 weeks, which was to go home to tell Kyle that his brother most likely was not going to survive. I want to tell Kyle face to face, if that makes sense. Yeah. I didn't want him to hear it from anybody else I wanted him to hear it from me That 16 weeks that I was there, it changed me David, I remember in the ward that we were in and I had a little camp bed so at night time the nurses would you know, would get Billy down for the night and he'd have to sleep in a cot but once they turned their back I had him up and in the bed beside me in this little camp bed and I remember stroking him, I remember his bath, I would massage him, I would cream on him because when I was holding him David, there was these two big blue eyes looking up with me and it was almost as though Billy was wooling me To actually help him. And he was willing me to fight for him. And I, I remember praying in that camp bed. In that hospital with Bully. And I remember saying to God. If you let my little boy survive. I will do absolutely anything. And everything to protect him. And I will never leave him. And I will give him the best quality of life that I can. And looking back now David. I think God listened. And I'm not a religious person. But I do believe he listened. So That 16 weeks, I think I turned into, I had plenty of time, David, because it was me and Billy there on our own, you know what I mean? And I think it turned me into some sort of, instead of just being a foot soldier, it turned me into the commander. I went up through the ranks really quickly, and I then started to think, and this is probably going to sound absolutely crazy to anybody listening to this, but I started to think, I realised that I had to be one step ahead of the medical establishment. And it turned me into, I was at war then. I was in a full-blown war. And I started thinking like a commander, not like, as I said, not like a foot soldier. I was planning, plotting, planning my next move, expecting the worst with Billy, but would have the solution there, if that makes sense, to protect him. And that's what I did. When I got Billy home, I started to research on the internet. I started to Google the word epilepsy. I started to, anything about epilepsy, I started to Google doctors. And from the side of my bed would be novels. They were chucked in the bin. It was all printouts, downloads of epilepsy, books of epilepsy all around my kitchen, utility room. There was every single published paper on epilepsy by some of the most world-ranking doctors and this particular doctor stood out for me a guy called Professor Douglas Nordley and I found him in Chicago in the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago and I contacted the Children's Memorial Hospital because the fr- most frightening thing that I discovered with all this research was that in our country, for children like Billy, we have doctors that treat them. There are doctors that are called paediatric neurologists. Yeah. Now, a paediatric neurologist has training into everything to do with the brain not just epilepsy, okay? What Billy needed was, what I discovered was, what's called as an epitologist, which is a specialist, an epilepsy. And there's a massive difference. So this Professor Douglas Norley was an epitologist. So I contacted him as his office. They said, send Billy's medical records. So I requested all Billy's medical records from um, the our health department in Northern Ireland. It took me over five, six months to get them. They wouldn't give them to me. They were preventing, they were blocking me from getting them until eventually what I did was I put Billy in the car, I put his oxygen tank in the car, all his nappies, toys, food, buggy. I drove to Belfast, which is a four-hour round trip from our house. I went to the medical records department and I sat there until they give me the medical records. So then I put them in the post and I sent them to Chicago and I had to wait three weeks to see if Professor Nordley was studying his records to see if he could help him. And eventually after three weeks, the call came. His secretary, Ms. Clara, a lovely Mexican lady, absolutely lovely. I, I met her and love her daily. She called me to say that Dr. Nordley felt that he could help Billy. And that was the first time that there was any doctor, any medical, Doctor had said that they felt they could they could help him. But Dr. Nordley at that stage, obviously without seeing Billy or doing any testing, Billy, felt that Billy might be a candidate for epilepsy brain surgery. So I asked Miss Tara on the phone and to what cost, to what price? She said probably about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars So I said, okay, I'll get the money. And I then at that stage, Billy's father and me were still living in the same house, but we weren't connecting at all, David. You know, there was nothing there on my side. It was gone the relationship was gone so i i informed him that i had found this uh doctor and he could help billy and i said the cost is huge but i'm going to raise the money i'm going to go public and raise the money and he there was a huge argument we had he was going to work going out all week in the lorry yeah it was a monday morning he was going to work and he said if you go public on this if you put billy's story out publicly i won't be here blah blah, blah. and i was like that's fine i don't want you here anyway and he went out to get in the car and I went out after him and he was still saying no. So the words, the swear words weren't. <laughs> um, I was very aggressive, David. And it was like um I kicked the car and I was like, what the fuck? Basically, hmm. you know, as a chance that it could save our son's life. Why would you not fucking want to do that? What the fuck is wrong with you? It was like a really bad argument, David. It was Horrific. I just I completely lost the plot. He drove off in the car. I went into the house. I was shaking, I was crying. I just sat there for a good 15-20 minutes. I was ho- I picked Billy up and you know what, David? I picked up the phone and I rang or look a local journalist and I said, This is our story and I want to tell it. I need to raise this money for my son. And this journalist called Mark McKelvey from our local paper, The Ulster Herald, was just, he was like an airs angel sent to us. He came out, he took photographs of me and Billy, he printed our story and we appealed to the nation um, that we needed to raise this money and within 10 weeks, we had a hundred wow. and seventy thousand pound raised, and we booked the tickets uh, for Chicago. So me and Billy were—I was taking them to Chicago.
0: While Charlotte and Billy's life brought them surprising and disappointing challenges from people who were not prepared to help, thankfully their story is graced with heartwarming examples of caring souls who came into their life and who made the decision that they truly wanted to help. In that last piece from Charlotte, you heard her make reference to the incredible support of her local newspaper, The Ulster Herald, and she gave the grateful label of Earth Angel to a young and inexperienced journalist called Mark McKelvey. From the telephone call that was made from Charlotte on June seventh, two 2007, Mark picks up the story about the incredible fundraising campaign, which would become the catalyst to saving Billy's life.
2: She rang. She happened to come through to me, could have come through to one of the other reporters, but um, I said, yeah, no problem, and went down and met her, Billy, for the first time. It was June 7th, 2007.
0: Charlotte being Charlotte, and one of the things that's become apparent in the interviews that I've done with her, Mark, is she's quite a personality. She's a tenacious lady, and she was skillful enough to get a journalist to go and see her about a story, and not having declared what the story was.
2: Yeah, basically, it was just as just as this is uh, said. I've got a story for you. you. Can't leave. I can't leave the house. I don't want to do it with the phone. Can you come down and and see me? Um, I, hope, I think it'll be something. Hopefully, you'll be interested in.
0: What were your recollections when you actually got there, Mark, and you met Charlotte and you saw Billy?
2: I couldn't believe it when I went in. No, like obviously, I went in completely unaware of what the story would be. Billy was in a sort of a playpen, just lying down, sleeping. He was eleven months old at the time, and then just Charlotte had told me basically. Straight, she just captured me straight away. It was like with the phrase. Um, he was sent home from hospital today, given six months to live. A day to six months, which is obviously in a month's time would have been. The time frame that the doctors had sent him home today, giving him no hope, he was on the level of beta blockers and drugs. He was on was enough for a fifty year old man who's had a quadruple bypass. It was basically to try and keep the seizures at bay. She told me like he was having over thirty epileptic seizures a day, and basically anytime the really bad ones was blue really light to the ambulance, uh, to the hospital. She was back and forth, and that was her. That was her day. It was her routine. Um, she it was her life at the moment, but. The well, first thing she said was probably that the doctors may have sent Billy home today, but that's not the diagnosis or the um, future that she was going to give her son. She was doing everything she could to prove them, well, not prove them wrong, just to find an alternative diagnosis somewhere would give her hope.
0: On the barometer that you would have as a journalist back then, Mark, for the different types of stories that were out there for you to cover, where did this sit in terms of how unusual it was?
2: I'd only been working as a journalist for just over a year at this stage, I hadn't come across anything like this.
0: What did Charlotte say to you that made you think that there was something that could be medically done to help Billy improve his life? She
2: said, I've been searching online. There's hope in America. Um, I've seen options. I'm not accepting what the doctors have said. Just like basically get all they kept doing. Every time he had a major seizure, the option was this increases drugs, this keeps the drugs. And it was just like and it was just leaving him, I don't want to use the phrase, but leaving him, leaving him like a vegetable just sort of there because he wasn't, it was like nullifying the brain activity so that he to try and stop the seizures sparking off in the brain. So it was like just like stopping his everything or whatever. So he was just lying comatose basically in the bed. And Charlotte was like, I need to go at the first it was going to be um what she through her research. Basically, if Billy was asleep, she was researching something um, through her fight to try and give a Option and she, I think it was John Hopkins, who was originally the um, hospital that she was looking to go to. I remember because obviously such a famous American, although the name, um, they she found a doctor there that she hoped to get to. That was the initial one whenever she first spoke to me, but that changed then uh, later down the line that, that you find Dr. Douglas Nordley in Chicago, hospital in Chicago.
0: Do you remember, Mark, how emotionally you felt? You were quite a young journalist back then, only a year in, but do you remember how much of an impact listening to the story in such a poignant way had on you?
2: Yeah, she captured me immediately. I was, I walked back into the office. I don't know, it was probably had a couple of hours maybe. I walked back into the office and... This is a time before social media, really, yeah. uh, in 2007. So you see all these campaigns now or whatever, but I went into the office and I went to our IT team and said we're, we needed to create a website. And till so the editor we're starting a campaign. It wasn't this. I wasn't just doing a one-off story. This is something we need to basically run with and try and give as much support as possible. So it wasn't just going to... It was never in my intention. As soon as I met, it wasn't just going down to write one story and then wish you all the best and we'll do updates along the way. It was... Basically, this is a campaign and the name of it became Billy's Ray of Hope campaign. Um, we set up a website, Billy's Ray of Hope. And the next edition we launched, it was within a few days. The website was up and going, on. There was a donate button on it. We got Charlotte to create a little committee that for the fundraising, um, including her local reverend. So, to who would have signature rights over it. So so there's no um, bigger deal about the money or that same. So we would have control to sign off. And the whole thing was just... So that was all donations. We were going straight to the website. And uh, we launched that that week and it just took off.
0: Yeah, so I mean, credit to you and your organisation for doing more than just writing a story I mean to actually go away and produce a website back in those days as well when producing a website was a lot more difficult than it is today Mm -hmm. as you said no social media nowadays you can produce something online within a couple of clicks and you can you've got the likes of GoFundMe and various other different engines there and designed to support fundraising but it was more of a substantial effort back then what was the response like you know how quickly did it take for people to start sort of getting captivated by this story
2: so it was the front page of the paper. It was just an entire, um, I think it was in practically an entire photo of Charlotte Holden Billy and he had his little flat cap on that she used to have him on those back in those days. And it's just his face, just straight away, it uh, captured the attention of the community and just not even the local community. Suddenly everyone was doing fundraising events and just want to raise money and donate. We soon took off. We didn't really have a target at that stage, but then within probably a few weeks, we, the page of the paper became dedicated to the campaign. Uh, we had a thermometer going up the side, showing the money raising up. But it was all. It wasn't all. It was obviously just the stories about Billy's health and everything. But it was then stories about complete strangers who were just Charlotte never heard. They didn't know Charlotte. Charlotte didn't know them. were just doing fundraising. We had school kids uh, doing uh, events in school to raise money. One sticks out was this um, wee boy Lee Mitchell in Gibson Primary School. Um, he had Down syndrome um, and he was just doing all this fundraising around Christmas to, for Billy. And we went in then, took Billy in to meet him. Um, but just the whole community took it into his heart, his story into their heart. So there's been so many stories since of fundraising to go to America and things like for, or elsewhere overseas for health to try and find that hope. But this was one that sort of was the first I had heard of of this kind. The story then soon went out of Oma and Tron and Kessler and everywhere. Because we're going to America, I sent the story to the Irish American Voice, the biggest Irish um, newspaper in America. Um, I then got a story in the Chicago Tribune to say we're like an Irish boy coming to Chicago to try and save his life. The Chicago Tribune has, I get it, a million and a half, towards two million readership a day. That's maybe more. And checks started flying through across from America, um, coming to the office into to us for me to deposit. Um, so they were coming directly to to me in the office to, for entitled Ray rape hope campaign. We're chatting a thousand dollar checks. I got story in Irish Independent, and um, checks were coming from the south for thousand euros. There, there was numerous of that amount, but the target was uh, quarter of a million is what we put on the thermometer, and it was crazy, just nonstop. Did you
0: uh, actually go to Chicago yourself, Mark, and cover the story from that side yeah. as well?
2: Yeah, I went out for two weeks. Um, I went into Charlotte. Wanted me and every took me into every. So the first time Billy was diagnosed after all the treatment or after they basically took him off all his medication, the DCGs, MRIs. It was like a especially the the reason for going there was the three uh Tesla uh, MRI machine machine was that. So they took him off all his meds just so they could let his brain spark and locate locate this um, location. So whenever it's the first diagnosis after that, there's like Charlotte the. I said I went into the room as well to hear the doctor's diagnosis as well. So, to so
0: give... I guess Charlotte was really keen to make sure that all the people that had kindly supported were fully in tune and aware yeah. of the journey that Billy was going on and that their money was actually and how their money was, was really genuinely being used to, to try and mm-hmm. help save his life. Mark, as you had the privilege of sitting in, in on the meetings with the doctors, what were some of the first reactions that the doctors gave?
2: He was shocked, basically the doctor over there was shocked by the diagnosis Billy had been given in uh, six months here. shocked by the level of medication he was on, and um, completely took him off all medication and put him on a ketogenetic diet which controls, to help control the seizures and just readjusted his medications at that stage and started a course of treatment of going forward to try and give him the best uh, a chance of life, really, at that stage.
0: Mark, if you wind forward to today and all the work that you've done, all the stories that you've written over the years... Where does this rank in your life and in your career in terms of its impact and levels of satisfaction it's given to you?
2: Oh, it uh, was always the the biggest, really. Um, it actually won me an award for Northern Ireland um, Weekly Journalist of the Year uh, the following year, which was a complete shock. But it was like the stories for the campaign um, just tribute to the fact that going, uh, not just doing the story, but taking a community, just sharing it in the community and going that wee bit further. So... Um, yeah, so that was obviously a very proud moment, but obviously I didn't, at the time, a year earlier, wasn't uh, doing the story for an award or anything like that got there.
0: Mark, as you look back on the story of Charlotte and Billy and all the years that have passed since you did that first fundraiser, what are your observations as you look at the story? What are your thoughts on what Charlotte and Billy have managed to accomplish?
2: If Charlotte had just accepted the diagnosis of the expert, the doctors, we sh- she be- who we're supposed to believe in and no, um, Billy wouldn't be with us. She was. He was sent home today, given six months to live for that. instead uh, Charlotte decided to open up the computer, start researching. Um, I don't think she, if she, if she got more than one or two hours sleep a night, any night, probably in most of her life, uh, I'd be shocked. Basically, just sitting up looking for any alternative than what to the life she was given. Um, And started the campaign, raised the money to give that hope when she fought to go to America well, we'd been to Stormont a few times as well to challenge the health minister to try and get treatment the trip funded, to say, right, there wasn't these aren't able to provide the care here, their treatment here please pay for it elsewhere I find, and she was just saying, we'll find this other hope across that can help Billy, If if it can't be provided here please help fund it and just fell on deaf, deaf ears, really, so just um, just obstacles and couldn't overcome And that's just, just thanks to the community then, taking Billy's story into their hearts, so they we were able to raise the money to give her that hope to go to America. Meet Dr. Nordley, who set Billy in a new path of treatment. Immediately, Charlotte and Billy stayed in America and started physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Charlotte had been told Billy would never, even if he was uh, alive, he wouldn't be able to ever walk, talk. Function. So Billy running around his back garden, playing football, playing with his brother, playing, being able to play, communicate, uh, show his own personality. None of that would be happen if it wasn't for the fight of a mother to never give up, to basically challenge authority, that not accept what she's been told by the experts, to find alternatives, to give her son the best chance of life and the best quality of life possible. And any obstacle, with those obstacles at the very start, in Stormont, with the Health Minister, to, who wasn't, his hands were tied, wasn't able to provide any funding. And she, every couple of years or so, she meets other obstacles, usually to do with government authorities, with rules, regulations, and that are detrimental to Billy's health, is how she sees it. So she fights and fights and fights to change the rules. So Billy has a better quality of life. Not just Billy, it became a, a point that for Charlotte that there's others in his situation that she didn't want to see go through the same thing and who will benefit from uh, changes in laws and regulations as well.
0: And so that brings episode one of this remarkable story to an end. In episode two, Charlotte takes us through the story of what happened when she arrived in Chicago and even more challenges. Plus, we hear from some of the other people who supported Charlotte and Billy, including another earth angel by the name of Dr. John Burton. Here's a short clip from my interview with John, where he shares his thoughts on Charlotte. I'm not a religious man, I I don't eat the altar rails, but there comes at times a phrase, a prayer, which reminds me very much of Charlotte. It's called the Serenity Prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, Charlotte is one of the most courageous people I've ever met. Charlotte never had the advantage of a third level education. Had she been, she would have been unstoppable because she has a wisdom that I've rarely seen in others. So courage and wisdom she embodies words of very high praise for charlotte from dr john burton more from him in episode two you've been listening to the podcast called lessons in hope the story of charlotte and billy cordwell my name is david Lilly, and i look forward to continuing this story with you in episode two